what I've done now is created this whole other paradigm in anti-aging where you combine the right nutrition with clean skin care, with non-invasive and minimally invasive treatments. And yes, I'll do surgery, but only as an absolute last resort. And this has been basically what my practice has now been and what I've been online and on TV and everything for the last several years. You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kybert, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. Today, we sit down with Dr. Tony Yoon, America's holistic plastic surgeon. Tony, I'm super excited to sit down and chat. This will be a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me, Emily. Yeah, we're like from uh, same hometown area, Michigan. Well, I'm a, I'm a transplant there because I'm originally from around Grand Rapids. Uh-huh. And you know, the west side of Michigan people look very differently on the east side of Michigan people. We're very <laughs> different. How does the west side look on the east side? <laughs> well, to us, the east side, like Detroit, and, and, this, and I live in Detroit now, but back then growing up near Grand Rapids, Detroit was just thought of as this big hole of, we don't know what's happening there. <laughs> it's a bunch of like violence and they've got good sports teams now, however, it's very different because Detroit has really made a huge comeback. I mean, back when I grew up, downtown Detroit, you just didn't want to go there because you just didn't go. Yeah, yeah it was a, it was just as dangerous, and, and, yeah. and the, they call it the murder capital of the world. <laughs> and yeah, and now it's a whole other story, and and now they're calling it America's comeback city. So it's real exciting. Yeah, it's interesting. When I was growing up, I always saw the west side of Michigan as farm country, just like farm. And I don't know if that's mm-hmm. accurate, but. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of farms there, but there's also Lake Michigan, which is, I mean, it's beautiful in the summertime. It sucks in the winter. <laughs> My God, yeah. the lake affects snow. It's, <laughs> it's a beautiful part of the of the state. So Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your practice, because I love that you take this integrative, holistic approach to looking younger. And when we look younger, we feel younger. Can you just yeah. tell us a little bit about your practice? Yeah. So I'm a board certified plastic surgeon. I did all the kind of normal, I guess, normal training. I did medical school for four years. I did a three-year general surgery residency. I did two years in plastic surgery residency. I did a year fellowship in plastic surgery, cosmetic plastic surgery out in Beverly Hills. And then I was on a show called Dr. 90210 many years ago. And my practice exploded from there. And I've done a bunch of TV with Dr. Oz, Rachel Ray, uh, Good Morning America and stuff. And you know, all of this basically created this very busy practice for me. And I thought everything was cruising along. My practice in Metro Detroit became the busiest practice in the area. And then I had a patient that rocked my world. I had this patient who I did a facelift on her and it was as smooth of a surgery as you could ask for. And the patient was super happy initially. I sent her home. And then two days later, two, three days later, she was feeling so good that she said, you know what? I'm going to go for a run. <laughs> well, you're not supposed, you know, you know this. I mean, you've seen patients after surgery yeah. uh, with what you do and not a good idea. And so sometimes just because you feel good doesn't, and you don't have pain doesn't mean that you're healed. So what she ended up doing is going for a run. And then very quickly after running, she noticed that her neck started swelling. And as a plastic surgeon, one of the things that 
I have realized in my practice is that if you get bleeding after a facelift, that bleeding can be a big deal very, very quickly. And so very quickly, her neck started filling up with blood. She luckily dialed 911, was sent to the emergency room. I met her at the hospital. And very quickly, when I saw her, she basically looked like Jabba the Hutt. Oh my goodness. And when a neck bleeds after a facelift, it is very, very scary. And and the fear is that not that you're going to you know, lose all your blood. It's not that much blood, but it's enough that you could potentially close off your airway. And so very quickly at her bedside with her husband watching, I tore out all of her sutures. Luckily, I even had, I had basically time to grab a regular glove, not even a sterile one, grab clumps of blood out of her neck to basically depressurize it. And eventually she did great. And she looked fantastic. I brought her to the OR, rushed her to the operating room and cleaned everything up found a little bleeding artery. And I stepped back from this and I thought, holy crap, this patient of mine, very healthy woman, almost died after a facelift. And it really got me to thinking, is there a better way for all this? Because when I went through all my medical school and residency, it was all about treatments and procedures and surgery. And my practice still is extremely busy with surgery but I thought there has to be a better way. And so I went back to the drawing board and I started really doing a lot of research into ways to turn back the clock, to look and feel younger without necessarily going under the knife. And it has coincided with this explosion in non-invasive and minimally invasive treatments in our field. What I've done now is created this whole other paradigm in anti-aging where you combine the right nutrition with clean skin care with non-invasive and minimally invasive treatments. And yes, I'll do surgery, but only as an absolute last resort. And this has been basically what my practice has now been and what I've been online and on TV and everything for the last several years. I love it that you have this saying that true beauty is holistic. Like I feel like that one line kind of packages everything you just said. Yeah, I think so. Because in the end, you know, there are doctors out there who all they do is surgery. They don't have skincare in their practices. They don't have anybody who knows anything about nutrition. And most plastic surgeons don't know jack about true nutrition. And they don't (laughs) really have anything other than surgery. And if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So if all you do is surgery, then what are you going to recommend? A lot of these doctors, they just recommend surgery. And so really what is beauty in the end? You know, It really is holistic. Like if you are an unhealthy person who is with a ton of advanced aging, a facelift isn't going to necessarily reverse that. Right. So a lot of our listeners are working out, they're dialing in how they're eating, they're taking supplements. How have you um, started to integrate, especially supplements in terms of like a pre-surgical and then after surgery kind of protocol? There are two separate protocols that I have for my patients and we sell these online at my online store. The first thing is before and after surgery, and the second thing is generalized anti-aging. So before and after surgery, all of my patients get a holistic supplement protocol that contains things like L-arginine, which is an amino acid that's been proven in many, many studies in the surgical literature to help improve healing, glutamine and other essential amino acids, and these are ones that can help to reduce protein loss, muscle wasting after surgery. We also get them on antioxidants too. We have one called collagen support, where it's antioxidants, vitamins, and minerals to help with basically promoting collagen afterwards. 
we put patients also on a probiotic because everybody gets some type of an antibiotic around the time of surgery and the probiotic helping with the microbiome. So super important. And then the other thing is that we put patients on a omega-3 on fish oil about two weeks after surgery. And we're really careful that they don't take it before surgery because it can increase your risk of bleeding. But two weeks afterwards, it can help reduce inflammation. So those are some of the general things that we do. And, And all of my patients who have surgery, this is part of what they get. It's just part of the whole package. Now, when you're looking at anti-aging and nutritional supplements for anti-aging, what I recommend are good antioxidants because you got to fight free radicals. Okay. It's that whole oxidation process. We recommend same thing as a probiotic and omega-3 fatty acids. Okay. Probiotic, once again, promoting your microbiome. I know you've talked a lot about this on your podcast. Yeah. Omega-3 fatty acids, anti-inflammatory inflammation is one of the great agers of our body. And so this is a great way to kind of flood your body with potent omega-3 fatty acids to help reduce that inflammation. And one thing that we just brought on actually is a supplemental collagen, is a collagen supplement. We have friends of ours who are, and you may be big into bone broth. You and I have never talked about about (laughs) bone broth, but as far as getting patients to take bone broth, you know, I can encourage them to buy it and stuff, but they always ask me, where am I going to get it? How do I make it? And this and that. It's tricky. So instead, yeah. yeah, what I do, you know, the, the big part of bone broth is collagen and is the gelatin. And so what we have is a supplemental collagen where it's basically just a scoop that they put in their drink every day. It's, it's tasteless. We launched it like two weeks ago and within two hours we sold out. We got a new shipment in and within an hour of getting that, that sold out too. So <laughs> I think I got to start producing more, I think. I think that's a problem for me. So when people are taking this pre and post surgical supplement protocols, what do you see? Is it like less swelling, recoveries quicker? Like what kind of stuff is it, are you seeing? Yeah, what we're seeing is that patients are using less pain medication they appear to have less bruising, less swelling. They just seem to have a bit of a quicker recovery. Oh, the other two things that we add that I haven't mentioned are Arnica and bromelain. And both mm. of those are basically anti-inflammatory to help with bruising and that type of thing. But you know, the first thing that I did when I started testing patients on this is making sure that they didn't have any complications from it. A lot of my patients come in and you know, most a lot of the population are on a multivitamin, but the problem with most multivitamins is that they have vitamin E in it. And vitamin E can actually prevent or slow down the healing process. And so we always, whenever patients come in before surgery, I've always just took them off all their supplements because sometimes I don't know what's in these supplements. And so the good thing too, is for those people who are already on certain supplements coming in, we give them our supplements. It's just part of the whole package. They don't have to pay any extra for it. And they're still getting a lot of these nutrients. I mean, a lot of stuff that they were getting beforehand, but now they're getting it in a way that we know is safe before and after surgery. I love it. It's so great. It's like, what I wish every <laughs> every doctor would do pre like pre surgery. Yeah, the problem is is that you know for creating this, what I ended up doing is I looked at the actual peer reviewed surgical literature, and a lot of it is on is from like the surgical ICUs and people who are really sick, like from burn surgery, people who have pressure sores, and they're the ones that in the surgical literature that they actually treated with nutritional supplements. And I combine the information from that with what we see from our holistic health experts, people like who have been on your show, and trying to combine all of that together into a program that that worked, but also that once again didn't cause issues with bleeding and that type of thing. And I have been using it now, my patients, gosh, for 
over a year now, and I have seen no increase in hematoma or bleeding issues, maybe even a decrease in it. Interesting. Have you found a difference in terms of surgical outcomes and recovery in terms of those who are inactive versus those who maybe only do lots of cardio, like elliptical or walking versus a population that does a little more strength training? Because I don't think there's a lot of research on it out there, but I was just wondering from you, like your clinical background, different types of exercise, have you seen difference in your outcome after surgery? I haven't seen anything that's obvious to me. I do think that there is a big difference in patients who are active. They are healthier, that, that are watching their diet, what they eat, as well as they're active, they're exercising versus people who are very sedentary. Mm-hmm. You can actually see it in their tissues, believe it or not. Mm. You know, I, do, I do a lot of surgeries, breast surgery, as well as tummy surgery, like tummy tuck surgeries. And uh, if you talk to any surgeon, they can tell you that certain patients, their tissues are stronger, they appear healthier than other patients. And I do think a lot of that has to do with muscle, with a lot of the surgeries that we do, because those patients in general who seem to be healthy, once again, working out, they're with with a healthy diet, their tissues just appear to be firmer and stronger. And those patients also tend to heal faster from surgery. Whether they have less complications, I can't tell you for sure. But in general, leading a clean, healthy lifestyle I do see those patients tend to heal much quicker and do much better. Interesting. So what do you recommend? Because I know you play with some of this on your own. It's always like your, your own kind of self-experimentation in terms of just living a healthier lifestyle. Yeah, I think it's so important to try things for yourself. You know, there's this kind of, there's this term that you and I have heard of, but probably the general population hasn't called biohacking, yes. uh, where, you know, I, I think that we all like evidence-based medicine, which the way we describe it is that you ideally test different theories, different treatments on on the largest group of people that you can to get the best data. And that really should be what guides medicine. However, what it doesn't do quite as well sometimes is deal with the individual variations and the bio-individuality that we all have. And so, for example, I get some of my patients who they go on a strict whole food plant-based diet and they see their skin improve incredibly. I have other patients who go on that and they don't do so well with it. And they go on a more paleo-based diet with clean meats, they reduce the sugar, they get rid of gluten and their skin gets a lot better. So, you know, for me, I think what I try to get my patients started out with and my followers too is first of all is just cleaning up your diet. And then you can get, you know, after your diet is cleaned up and you get rid of the excess excess sugar, the processed foods, you reduce your dairy or get rid of it altogether, then you can make the argument of, can you thrive without eating meat? Because you and I know that there are people who are on both sides of the, (laughs) they all have their own studies that seem to support their theories, so. Yeah. You also do, I literally look at your Instagram stories every single day. And it's so cool to see like before and after transformations, like before Mm -hmm. surgery, after surgery, but then you guys also do a lot of skincare. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of us who work out and are really keeping our nutrition dialed in, I know even for myself, I'm always like, okay, how does my skin look in relationship to like what I'm putting in my body and Mm -hmm. how I'm treating my body? How do you help your patients and your clients preserve their skin, especially as we age and we're in the sun or, you know, yeah. So super active. 
So, you know, it's very confusing because, you know, you and I, we yes. can walk into Sephora or the, or Nordstrom and it's just their products everywhere. And it's like, where do you start? What do you use? And then on top of all that, you look at the ingredients, you go, well, are these ingredients good for me? Are they bad for me? Like, what do I, should I go with organic? Should I not? So what I've done is created this thing. It's called the two minutes, five years younger skincare routine, you know, and we have my own products wow. that I use for it, or you can go and buy your own. That's fine. But what it is, is it's a very simple thing that everybody should do because it literally takes two minutes a day. And what it is, is that the bare minimum of what you should do for your skin is every morning, cleanse your skin and and pick a cleanser appropriate for your skin type. So if you've got really oily skin, then you want to get a foaming type of a cleanser because that's going to get rid of some of that excess oil. If you've got really sensitive skin, then a foaming cleanser may be too aggressive and you may want to go with more of a milky hydrating type of a cleanser. But first thing, you want to cleanse your skin. After that, you want to apply an antioxidant serum. Now, the most popular antioxidant is vitamin C. And pretty much all of the major skincare companies have some type of a vitamin C serum. So you want to apply vitamin C. The key to vitamin C is you want to avoid the really cheap ones because a lot of times if it's not packaged right, the vitamin C can go bad. It can oxidize. So the key is if you look at your vitamin C serum, it needs to be in a jar that's dark amber or that's completely occlusive to light, because if it gets light on it, it can oxidize and then it basically loses its effectiveness. And if it comes out brown, then that means it's already oxidized, okay? Mm, good to so know. You wanna apply vitamin C in the morning. If you wanna take the extra step, a vitamin C, vitamin E combination has been shown in studies to be synergistic, to get even better results as far as fighting free radicals if you combine vitamin C and vitamin E. And then after that, you want, ideally want to apply some type of sun protection. I usually recommend an SPF of 30 or more. I mean, a lot of people are using mineral makeup now, and that does have mineral-based sun protection, which is good. But you really do want to protect your skin against the sun. Even on cloudy days, most dermatologists recommend that you apply sunscreen. But I will admit that I am guilty of not always doing <laughs> <laughs> so, th but that's all you have to do in the morning. Very simple. That's it. Cleanse your skin, apply a vitamin C, ideally vitamin C E combination serum, your sunscreen. And then if you wear makeup, then apply the makeup after that. At night, super important. You got to cleanse your skin. Okay. Because you get a day's worth of grime, of oil, of dirt, of pollution that sits on your skin. You have to wash that off. Now, so many of us, we're tired at night. We want to just go to bed you got to wash your face. So start by washing your face, get rid of all the days worth of grime. After that, apply an anti-aging cream, okay? The one that I recommend most people use is retinol. If you talk to dermatologists and plastic surgeons around the country and you say, what is the best anti-aging ingredient? Bar none, it's retinol. It's the most scientifically proven and studied it will help to tighten up your skin. It exfoliates your skin. It removes dark spots, although very, very gradually for that. It helps to reduce fine lines. And even prescription strength, which is tretinoin or retin-A, has been shown to reverse early pre-skin cancers. Hmm. So that's a lot that this one type of cream does. Apply a retinol cream at night. Most big skincare companies have their own retinol cream. I have my own in my brand, uh, Yoon Beauty, that's also natural and organic. And then if you want to apply a night cream over that, you can. But if you, let's say, have oily skin, if it's in the summertime, you don't have to apply anything more after that. And technically, that's all you have to do at night is cleanse your skin, apply a retinol moisturizer, and you can go to bed. 
Now, the final thing is I do recommend as part of the, the two minutes, five years younger skincare routine is two to three times a week. If you've got quote unquote normal skin, you want to exfoliate your skin. You can do that using an exfoliating scrub. You can do it using like a Clarisonic type of a device, like with a rotating head that exfoliates your skin. You can do at-home chemical peels. There's a lot of different ways to do it, but ideally you do, do want to exfoliate your skin regularly, not every night, but maybe two or three times a week. And if you do these things, like literally it's like two minutes a day, you're going to be way ahead of everybody else. What do you think of the natural, like I've had patients come and they're like, oh, I only moisturize with like olive oil or mm -hmm. coconut oil. Do you have any thoughts yeah. on that? Well, coconut oil, you want to avoid on your face. So that is something. Um, and, and our good friend, Jennifer Catherine, she's on uh, Hugo. Yeah, Hugo. Jen yeah. Hugo. She is really anti-coconut oil. Like big time. I know. Time <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, now I'm not as big time against coconut oil as she is, but I don't recommend you apply coconut oil to your to the skin of your face because it is comedogenic and it can clog your pores. Olive oil is a bit of a different story, and some people really like to go supernatural. I think that's fine. I myself don't want my face to smell like olive oil. <laughs> I like it in my food, but I don't know. I want it, you know, smelling like that. In general, a lot of the natural skincare products are basically made using oils, you know, but they will put it into a formulation that absorbs better into your skin, that feels better on your skin and that type of thing. So, you know, I'm all for that. I think also, but you have to keep in mind that there are certain things like vitamin C where you're going to get more potent if you actually get it through an actual product made for your skin versus, you know, trying to get vitamin C on your skin by putting the right oils on that, that, you know, from your kitchen counter type of thing. Right, right. So that's kind of one tier of your practice is like the skincare, the supplement, but then really the main body of it is the surgical approach, yeah? Yeah, we do actually a lot of a lot of minimally and non-invasive treatments. And so if you look, even my practice, I would say one out of every 40 or 50 patients in my practice has surgery. The other- Whoa. 49 out of 50 are not having surgery. And either they're getting skincare or they're getting laser treatments or chemical peels or maybe Botox, you know, those types of things. I mean, it's really a very small number that actually go under the knife. Interesting. I feel like that's unheard of for a plastic surgeon. <laughs> um, I mean, we're going, in, in general, we're trending that way. There are still those doctors who are really surgery, surgery, surgery. But in today's day and age, when there's so much that you can do, you know, now, for example, we have this device called Sculpture, and Sculpture is a laser device where you can melt fat. And it's been around now for a couple of years, but, but basically what it uses is it uses a laser to heat up the deeper fat to a temperature at which the fat cells basically die. Now, it doesn't hurt because we've got this cooling mechanism that cools the surface of the skin, so you don't get burned or anything like that, but you can lose upwards of 25% of the thickness of your fat after two treatments. And each treatment's like 25 minutes long. And each treatment, you can do up to four small areas. Each area is about the size of a deck of cards. So by doing stuff like that, now you don't necessarily have to consider lipo. A new thing that we don't have in my office yet, but I'm watching very closely, there's a new paradigm shift now. And this you might find interesting is now there are devices that you utilize electromagnetic energy to stimulate muscles to try to get the muscles to contract thousands of times a minute to actually increase the growth of these muscles. And so people are doing these devices to try to get more of a six pack, to make their butt bigger, 
supposedly they're moving now towards putting it on biceps and hmm. uh, deltoids and things like that. And it's basically a it's a way to bypass the gym for some people <laughs> to try to get their muscles basically bigger. And that's the kind of the newest thing coming around the bend right now, which is interesting. It really is not a substitute for diet and exercise and, and doing the right thing because stimulating those muscles isn't going to necessarily make you healthier. But it's for those people who say, geez, I've, you know, I work out a lot. I'm in great shape and I'm so close to getting that six pack, but I just can't get it. Then maybe this might be a reasonable option to get you there. Right. So they already have probably close to a lower body fat percentage. It's not for somebody who has a big jiggly belly who's got right. a BMI of 30. Like this isn't going to do anything for that person. Right. Um, but it's, yeah, it's for those people who, you know, like even with the fat reducing treatments that we have now, they're not for people who want to lose weight or anything. It's for those people who say, you know what, I take great care of myself, but gosh darn it, my dad gave me these little love handles or gosh darn it, my mom gave me these saddlebags, you know, and no matter what I do, I just can't get rid of them. It's just this genetic unwanted fat that is resistant to anything that I do. Well, hey, you know what? You don't have to have lipo then to get rid of it. Why, why don't we do something that's completely non-invasive? Right. Like, hey, you know what? If it can make you feel better, then you know all the more better, especially because there's very minimal risk with it. Yeah. I was reading one of your newsletters. I think it might've been out last week or recently talking about breast implant illness. Yes. Which I think is really interesting for a plastic surgeon to talk about, right? I, I think- Yeah, um, so this is a- yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting topic. It's very controversial. For those of you listening, if you're wondering, what is breast implant illness? It's, it's a constellation of symptoms that some women appear to have, such as hair loss, fatigue, muscle aches, rashes, and other types of autoimmune-type symptoms that some women appear to have after having silicone breast augmentation. Now, back in 1992 to 2006, silicone implants were banned in the United States because there were fears that, that maybe they were causing these types of illnesses. So there were multiple studies, thousands of women that were looked at that appeared to refute that this was a true phenomenon. And so in 2006, the FDA lifted the ban on silicone implants. And plastic surgeons afterwards applauded it and said, hey, you know, this is validation that these implants are safe and that these symptoms are bogus and it's, these people just have psychological problems. And that really has been the enduring dogma in plastic surgery for many, many, many years now. Well, what's happening is, is that there are women coming forward, thousands of women on social media telling their stories of getting sick after having breast augmentation with silicone implants, and then their symptoms improving after the implants are removed. And really, I applaud these women because they have taken on themselves to really tell their stories, which need to be told to show that, that there is something here. And so I have gone on record to say, I believe breast implant illness is real. I think that there is a percentage of women, albeit I think it's pretty small, who do react very poorly to breast implants. And the way that you know plastic surgery has treated them in the past of really dismissing their symptoms, I think has not been doing them the justice that they need. You know, It hasn't been doing them I don't know justice is the right word, but what we should always be doing is striving for whatever is best for our patients. And there's a question of, you know, is it that we're protecting our sacred cow of this operation that makes us money and stuff, or are we really doing what's best for our patients? There are some studies now that are showing that, that these symptoms do appear to be real and that we really have to take it very seriously. Have you had any experience just personally with any of the women experiencing these kind of autoimmune symptoms? 
Oh yeah. Yeah. And I have, you know, ever since going public with it, I have a YouTube video where I really go into the research with it. So, you know, what's happened with my career is that, yeah, you know, I read the plastic surgery studies and stuff and they all refuted that the breast implant illness is real and all that. And for years, I believe that too. And that was just what we were always taught. And if you talk to a plastic surgeon today, most likely they'll say, well, it's not real. The studies don't support it. But when you really ask me, well, have, have you actually read all the studies? Have you read the studies on the other side? You know, do you, have you looked at the rheumatologic literature on it? The answer is probably going to be no, they haven't. And so I actually took a weekend and really went through, I actually went through some of these websites of these breast implant illness support groups. And I looked at the articles that they're citing. I pulled them up and, and what I did was I created a YouTube video, which compiled the information on both sides. You know, the studies that the plastic surgeons cite to say that breast implant illness is not real. And the study is that the BII supporters say, you know, support them. And I do believe that it's real. And, and so I have seen patients where they've had implants. Typically, these types of symptoms don't show up for sometimes a couple of years. What we do find, and this is consistent with some of the small studies that are starting to come out, is that if you've got breast implants and you're having symptoms, hair loss, fatigue, brain fog, rashes and stuff, and you take your implants out, you probably have a good anywhere from 50 to 70% chance that those symptoms will improve. If however, yeah, if however you have been diagnosed with rip roaring autoimmune disease, you know, so I have had patients who come to see me and say, you know, I've got terrible lupus or I've got terrible rheumatoid arthritis. It's been going on for decades. Do you think my breast implants might be the cause of it? We take those implants out and usually their symptoms don't get much better. And that's also consistent with some of the studies that are coming out. And so it's something, you know, is it something where you have to ideally treat it earlier for the symptoms to improve? Or is it that maybe it can create symptoms, but not necessarily result in, you know, in most cases in, in you know, these rip roaring, once again, autoimmune diseases, it's, you know, we, we just need to do more, more research on it because we got to find this out. I wonder if there's, or if you know of any sort of testing that you could do beforehand to see if someone had sensitivity to silicone. You know, there are a couple of studies that have shown that uh, women who have silicone breast implants, these are old studies, okay, do appear to have an increase in antibodies to silicone and hmm. to collagen, actually, not, not silicone, to collagen, actually. So what happens is, is that these couple of studies appear to show that after undergoing breast augmentation with silicone implants, they appear to develop more autoantibodies to collagen. I mis misspoke. It's not to silicone, but to collagen. And that's the whole idea of this autoimmune type of thing. You know, so is it then that their body then reacts to their own collagen and that's what's causing these issues? We don't know. So what I tell my patients right now is, you know, we don't have much research on BII. They're starting to do more now, which I think is super important. And I really commend the plastic surgery societies for now doing this. I just got back from a meeting of plastic surgeons, uh, the annual meeting for the aesthetic society. And this is the first time that they actually had a panel on breast implant illness. And the president of the society actually said, you know what, a year ago, I thought it was hogwash. But after hearing these stories and looking at this, I think there's something here. Hmm. And you know, that is in my field, that is huge because if somebody were to say that five years ago, they would, I mean, there would be bad, you know, there'd be a lot of backlash. So I think it's, it's going all in the right direction. Um, but anyways, what, what I, what I tell my patients is that if you have a history of autoimmune disease or a history of severe allergies, then you may want to reconsider silicone breast augmentation. 
Is saline in plants, would that be better for you? Possibly, but we don't have enough data to tell you for sure. You know? yeah. and, and if you can be happy without breast implants, then by all means, don't have breast implants. You know, <laughs> in, in surgery, there are prosthetic devices. You necessitate many more operations in your lifetime. If you can be happy and live a happy, healthy life without implants, then by all means, don't have the implants put in. Oh, interesting. Such good information. One more question, just from like a functional perspective is like, I know some implants are placed under the pec muscle, the pectoralis Mm -hmm. muscle. Does that change? Do you, have you noticed changes with women in terms of like function or posturally after kind because you have to like lift the the muscle from the ribs, right? Yeah, it's interesting because there have been studies that have looked at that as well as tummy tuck surgeries. And then there are other surgeries where we actually remove muscle as what we call a flap surgery to reconstruct women's breasts. So where actually muscle is moved or removed or put in different places to, let's say, move. So for example, one's called a tram flap, where we take tissue from the lower abdomen after a woman has a mastectomy, and we use that kind of puffy fat in the lower abdomen to recreate a breast. But in order to do that, a lot of times we keep it connected to the the rectus abdominis muscle because that's where the blood supply comes from. Studies have looked at tram flaps do show a reduction in the strength of the abdominal musculature and the, possibly their core strength. Uh, and so there are new techniques that are being done that are called free flaps, where instead of having to keep that skin and that fat attached to the muscle, we can literally just move the tissue up to a different area and then reconnect blood vessels. It's a whole other deal. When you look at breast augmentation, we do often place implants under the muscle. So we lift part of the muscle up, sometimes divide some of the fibers of it to allow the implant to settle appropriately. What I tell my patients is that studies don't show any reduction technically in the strength of that or in activity. And I've not seen that in any of my patients. However, I do discourage my patients who have implants under the muscle from doing a lot of pectoralis exercises. I recommend they don't do a lot of bench presses, push-ups, or flies because I have seen in some women who have breast implants under the muscle, the implants can gradually move outward if that muscle is excessively strong. Hmm. Uh, so staying fit is fine, but I don't recommend you try to build that pectoralis muscle up because the more you do that, the more chance you have that your implants may move outward with time. It's not something that happens overnight. It's like a you know, it can happen over several years, but I have seen that in some patients. Yeah. I think of all the bodybuilders who get breast implants and then have to work up their muscles. So with bodybuilders, usually I would recommend going above the muscle because if you're flexing and your implants under the muscle, now you're, that implant's going to shift and move and we call it pectoralis animation. And you may see that if you watch bodybuilding competitions, where if they have an implant under the muscle and they flex that muscle, the chest muscle, that the implants, the breast starts looking weird and stuff. And that's because the implant's moving. So for those people who are bodybuilders, I usually recommend going above the muscle. Ah, so much good information. Where can people find you? Because your website is like, I could go onto your website and read for hours. Yeah. <laughs> and all your social channels. <laughs> well, I have my own podcast that you have yes. recently. Yep. So it's called the Holistic Plastic Surgery Show. So if you enjoy listening to podcasts, you're going to, and you like uh, this one, then I think, you know, I think our podcasts are have similar audiences and that people who are health-minded, they're holistic-minded. But yeah, I'm also on Instagram at TonyYoonMD. My website is DrYoon.com. We do have a free gift. If you go to my website, DrYoonDryun.com, we have a free ebook, What to Eat to Look Younger. So just talking about 
different foods and stuff that you can eat to turn back the clock completely free. Just put your email address in and I'm happy to send it to you. So good. Tony, thank you so much for sitting down and chatting. This was fun. Thanks for having me on. That's a wrap. I have two truths that I fully believe in. First, to be 1% better every single day. And second, all feedback is good feedback because it helps us grow. Why do I say this? If you're enjoying these conversations and you find this is adding value, send us some love by subscribing to Muscle Medicine Podcast on iTunes. And if you want to share your voice with the world and scream it from the rooftops and tell your friends, or you can just give us a little feedback so we can grow by rating and reviewing Muscle Medicine on iTunes. Thank you guys. So much gratitude. Dr. Emily Kybert here.